I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to welcome back Greg Nemet, professor at the La Follette School of Public Affairs, to talk about his work as a lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the recently passed reconciliation bill that included a lot of climate spending, officially called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Thank you so much for being with us, Professor Nemet. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's start with your work on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Can you tell us what that group is? your role, and maybe about your research and findings as a lead author on the organization's sixth assessment report. Yes, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, sometimes called the IPCC, was set up in the late 1980s, early 1990s to provide objective scientific advice to for the UN climate negotiations, which started around that time. And there's a major report that comes out every six or seven years. And so this is the sixth of those reports, and it was just released in April. And yeah, I worked on as a lead author on, on six sections of the report. Um, you know, generally they have to do with my work on innovation and improvements in renewable energy technology. And it was really, you know, something that a lot of parts of the report wanted to highlight. And so I guess I had the Good fortune then of getting to work and, and getting to provide input on on multiple sections of the report. In addition, I got to work on the summary of the report, which is really different. And you'll notice it's called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, not just the International Panel of Scientists working on climate change. So governments get to approve every statement in the summary document. And so it's about a 9,000 word document, like 30 pages kind of formatted. Uh, and we went through that line by line. And there was this uh, idea that it would take two weeks and it took a little bit more than two weeks to get all that text approved. And some of it was removed, some of it was altered. But I really came away encouraged that, uh, you know, the main findings of the report that we went into that approval process came out. But now we have 190 countries approving of what we said and what we said that the science uh, had to say about climate. Interesting. So this intergovernmental panel, did that potentially change the impact of the initial the initial legislation passed if they decide not to approve of it? Yeah, if they decide not to approve it. I mean, there's certainly uh, a time near the end of the two weeks where we'd been two weeks into the process. We had one day left and only a third of the text had been approved. And we basically expected okay, I mean, this, maybe we just won't get approved this time. And we won't, it'll be, the scientists said this, but it won't have the imprimatur of all the countries behind it. And so that was really a, uh, a realistic possibility that everybody feared and it was likely at one point. But then we spent the last two days just doing 48 hours of nonstop negotiation on it. And eventually it did get approved. And now we've got something that you know, says more than just a scientist saying it. So now someone working in an environmental ministry can take this report and say, look, we need to do more. This is what the science says. And it's not just a scientist saying it. It's India 
approve this. Saudi Arabia approved it. Russia has approved this. All the countries are on board with what we're saying here. So it just gives them a lot more clout and authority to use that evidence as a way to um, to push for stronger climate protection at, at the national level in many countries. Interesting. So is this one of the potentially biggest uh, reports that has the potential to have the biggest impact thus far because so many countries have approved of it? Um, I would say they've each been approved. Each of the six reports has been approved. But this was definitely the most contentious. And it's interesting because in a way, a lot of the science is far more conclusive than it was. Like the evidence of warming is much stronger. The evidence of the human role is, you know, uncontestable at this point. So it's interesting that this would be the most contentious report, even though the science is most advanced and most um, definitive on it. And I think it's because the strategies to do something climate, about climate change are also very advanced. They've also improved that they've become more affordable, they've become more useful and more efficient. And so I think there's a lot of entities, companies, governments with the strong stakes in the fossil fuel industry that feel under threat. And so I think that's why there is such a uh, contentious process this time compared to uh, those in the past. And the scenes, what nations were the most restrictive in trying to rein in some of the language that was going to be in there? Um, I think lots of lots of countries had something to say that seemed to represent their own domestic interest. And sometimes those seem strongly motivated by strong presence of fossil fuel industry in the country. Sometimes it was the opposite, that countries had a real interest in aggressive climate action because they are worried about climate change or that they have industries that are benefiting from cleaning up uh, our energy system. And so it was often helpful. The science was generally, you know, in favor of more aggressive climate action. Uh, And so it was often helpful that the green countries were standing up for a lot of things we were saying Whereas the, you know, petrostates and things were, um, uh, were much more contentious about the language that we were, uh, that we were using. Let's talk a little bit about the good news about climate change in uh, the UN's April landmark report, which suggested that the world does have the technology and it does have the solutions that it needs to cut emissions. However, time is running out to use these. Uh, can you walk us through some of some of this finding as well as some of the ways reducing emissions might happen? Uh, what needs to be done and what could the impact of that be? Yeah, well, I mean, I just come across as I'm, I'm pretty optimistic on climate change and I guess more optimistic than I've ever been having worked in this area for 20 years. And then a lot of it is because of the improvements in technology. And, you know, that was one of my main personal contributions to the report was documenting these long-term cost reductions in solar energy, in offshore wind power, onshore wind power, in batteries and other technologies where, you know, they've dropped in costs by like 90%. We now have 10% of the world's electricity coming from wind and solar. And these are big changes. And at the time of the last report, 2014, you know, these were still nascent technologies that might have an impact, but you couldn't say that there were a lot of jobs in that area. It was all about future promise, but now it's actually happening. And so you can't argue at all with what's happening with renewables and with electric vehicles. So it really makes the solutions way more feasible, way more affordable, and actually uh, 
pretty desirable in a lot of ways. If we think of how cities are organized that are low carbon or driving an electric vehicle, a lot of those things are high well-being and kind of fun. And so that really enables policy to be much more stringent than it would have been, you know, seven or eight years ago when the last report came out. So, yeah, that does make me optimistic as the technology development. What are the implications for Russia's actions in Ukraine and the response to the West with respect to the energy supply for climate change efforts globally? Um, there's been push for more oil and gas drilling in the last few months in Europe because of trying to cut down on the use of Russian natural gas. How does that all fit together? Yeah, well, it's a big open question. I mean, it's a lot. I mean, if we had to learn about how to interpret the uh invasion of Ukraine, you know, it looks a lot like the 1970s where, uh, you know, I just covered this in my class a few days ago. In 1973, there was an Arab oil embargo and all of a sudden oil prices went up by a factor of four. There were lines at gas stations. The economy slowed down. Inflation went up. <clears throat> We've seen this before uh, a couple times, also in 1979. And so, you know, part of the reaction to this is this is not a it's a horrible action and what and people are suffering but it's not unique i mean people have used fossil fuels as weapons and geo for geopolitical ends over and over you know through the course of wars in the 20th century but especially uh since 1973 because they see how impactful it can be so we should learn from that and what we've learned from the past is i guess there's a near-term medium-term and long-term reaction in the near term there's really nothing you can do about spiking energy prices and energy shortages other than finding smart ways to conserve energy. And that's already happening in a lot of European countries as we start to think about turning thermostats down in the winter, people investing in simple technologies like space heaters and electric blankets that run on electricity rather than gas. Gas is the real shortage issue right now. Electricity comes from a more diverse set of sources. So in the near term, finding people finding ways to reduce their energy demand, I think is going to lead to a lot of creativity, just in the same way that a lot of creativity was unleashed uh, in the pandemic over the last couple of years as people think about different ways to work. So different ways to use less energy, I think, is going to stay with us and it will be beneficial. In the medium term, if you're going to expand supply by building liquefied natural gas import terminals like Germany is starting to do, or finding new places to explore for oil like other places are starting to do you know those don't pay off for a couple of years and so that's a long-term bet that it's worth doubling down on our fossil fuel infrastructure because we think this energy security issue will be with us for a long time in the longer term i mean it only makes sense to transition away from fossil fuels because we have these alternatives that make sense it'd be beneficial for the climate it, there's tremendous economic growth that can come from access to low cost, renewable and other clean energy. And so, you know, that's that's where we need to go. Um, but clearly in the short term, there will be, uh, you know, cases made for expanding our use of fossil fuels. But it just seems like I think uh, at this point, I think people realize that's kind of, uh, you know, going back to the drug dealer for one more hit. It just doesn't seem like that's going to be in anyone's interest over, you know, even the medium term. And so. Uh, finding ways to get out of that, I think it's going to be the, the real challenge. But, you know, there's a lot of reasons we will do it this time that we didn't before. So do you think that switching to this cleaner energy on a global scale might weaken the global position of countries like Russia who 
have big exports right now of fossil fuels and those types of energy sources? Yeah, I mean, it's already happening. And you could argue that this is one of the reasons they're doing this now is they see the writing on the wall um, that demand for oil especially is likely to go down uh, quite quickly as electric vehicles really start to take off. And so if you have a fossil fuel that you can use as a weapon for geopolitical ends, probably more effective to use it in 2022 than in 2032. And so, you know, that could be uh, one of the reasons. So, you know, I, the way a lot of this works out is that, yeah, it's less likely that fossil fuel players will uh, be able to affect geopolitics as much as we shift on to other energy sources. But, you know, that may just reconfigure where power lies in energy. It might reconfigure things to place more power on places where critical minerals come from, whether it's cobalt or lithium or copper or other things, or where the processing happens. Like, is it the countries, like now 80 or 90% of the processing for those critical minerals happens in China. And, you know, do we... Is that a potential threat? And there's a lot of people that think it is. And that's why there's a lot of effort to develop domestic production and processing of those minerals uh, in the U.S. and other countries doing the same as well. So it's certainly a reconfiguration of where power based on fuels and energy comes from is likely to happen. So let's talk a little bit about the U.N. report's suggestion that greater investments need to be made in the sequestering of carbon. Can you explain to our listeners what it means to sequester carbon and what technology is currently available to do so? Yeah, so big difference between climate change and traditional air pollution. When we put particulates up in the air that makes kids sick and sends them to the hospital with asthma, if we stop putting those into the air, they'll just rain out within a few weeks. And so we won't have that problem anymore. Uh, that doesn't happen with CO2. Once you put CO2 in the atmosphere, it stays there for like 100 years on average. So that's a problem. Even if we completely cleaned up everything tomorrow, we'd still have that CO2 into the atmosphere. So that issue is why people talk about removing CO2 from the atmosphere. And there's kind of two reasons why we would need to do it. One is that we may not be able to reach the temperature targets that we want to do. We may what's sometimes called overshoot. And so if we put too much emissions into the atmosphere compared to what we said we would do, then the only alternative is to remove some of what's already there. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is that it's pretty clear from the Paris Agreement on climate change that we need to get to zero emissions sometime in the next 30 or 40 years. And it could turn out that there are parts of the economy where it's just too difficult to do things without fossil fuels. So maybe some industrial processes are like that. Some agriculture might be like that. Long distance aviation might be like that. And so those are sometimes called residual emissions, emissions that we can't quite eliminate. And so we may need to balance residual emissions with pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. It's certainly not the main answer to the problem. The main answer is to reduce emissions. But, you know, it could be 10, 15 or 20 percent of the solution is to remove uh, CO2 with different technologies, including chemicals, but also including more natural uh, things like photosynthesis and soils as well. 
So let's shift gears to talk about the reconciliation bill that passed Congress under the title the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Although it is smaller than Biden's original Build Back Better, which was proposed in 2021, it's still the largest spending package on climate in U.S. history. Can you walk us through the IRA and what efforts are in the bill to address climate change? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. I mean, just largest climate uh, legislation in U.S. history. I mean, in some ways, it's the only climate legislation in U.S. history, and it, it's a huge, it's a huge advance. Um, you know, let's see, were we talking about $369 billion over 10 years to go into clean energy? Um, large chunks of that will be tax credits to do things like make solar panels cheaper for people to install in their homes, make wind turbines cheaper for companies to install in wind farms, and then start to create other technologies and start to get them adopted. So there's a technology called a heat pump which is basically a refrigerator that goes in reverse and you can use it to make heat from electricity instead of using burning natural gas in your home to do that. And an array of other technologies like that. And so the idea is it had to be uh, filibuster proof. So the only way you could do that is to make it part of the budget reconciliation process. So it really only needed 50% uh, majority for that. And it got that just barely. Actually, when people thought it was dead, it, it came back from the dead about a month ago and was passed quickly. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's transformative. It's open to a lot of other new technologies that might come up, including things like removing CO2, including things like advanced nuclear technology. So there's a lot in there. I mean, in a way, it's a lot of money, but in a lot of ways, it's a tiny amount of money. It's, you know, $369 billion over 10 years. If we look at modeling to do what we need to do to get to net zero for the whole world, we need about $4 trillion, so 4,000 billion a year in the whole world. And here we're talking about 40 or so billion. So we're really uh, a small fraction of what we need to do. But the idea is this US money leverages a lot of other things. So it leverages private money. So we expect we do about four or five times as much private investment as that public investment. As companies find it's worthwhile to invest in wind power and new nuclear power and heat pumps, there'll be a lot of other money that flows in. And then also it provides an avenue for other countries to do something similar and also scale up their investment. So yeah, the, the key with this bill is it's potentially really catalytic. It'll get a lot of other investment to happen. And that's exactly what we what we need. So it really goes in the right direction that way. Let's talk a little bit about the branding of the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, as you just mentioned, it has a lot of content in there relating to climate change. However, it's being branded as deficit-reducing measure uh, to address inflation rather than primarily being a climate spending package. Uh, do you think that this was a strategic move? Yes, it was a strategic move. Uh, one, because inflation is high on voters' minds and there's elections coming up. So that's one part. Um, two, a lot of the criticism of Build Back Better, I think kind of without good reason, um, was targeted as it being just spending and spending is inherently inflationary. And so this was a way to respond to that accusation. Um, but more substantively, there's two reasons it is an Inflation Reduction Act. So first of all, you know, it, it does 
create new tax revenue by closing tax loopholes for corporations. So it raises the money that it spends. So that you know is not we're not talking about extra borrowing here. It's all self-funded through uh, closing tax loopholes. And two, you know, a big part of what's driving inflation right now is what we talked about earlier. It's Ukraine and it's people using fossil fuels and filling their gasoline at four dollars a gallon. And, you know, all of these technologies that are supported by the act get away from that, find ways to produce electricity from renewables or drive with electric vehicles. And, you know, in contrast to 10 years ago, you would have fairly said, well, all of those other technologies are expensive. And so if we shift over to renewables or electric vehicles, it's going to make everything more expensive and that's going to just add to inflation. And that was probably true 10 years ago. It's definitely not true today. The cheapest way to make electricity that humans have ever done is to be use solar panels today in sunny places. And we have lots of sunny places in the U.S. And even in Wisconsin, where it's not that sunny all the time, there's a lot of solar getting installed. And so renewable energy is inherently deflationary. It's not just that it's cheaper than fossil fuels, but the cost goes down over time. The more we make it, the more we use it, the cheaper it gets. And so trying to get on that train instead of trying to access more fossil fuels that are becoming more scarce and more expensive, that's deflationary. And that's why it is an Inflation Reduction Act, in addition to being really consequential on climate. Does that cost um, going down apply also to the like really new technology for carbon sequestration and those types of technologies as well? Um, let's see. So for some of the, it's definitely been true for the existing renewables and electric vehicles. Those are Those are the big ones. Um, and then other technologies like heat pumps and geothermal have a lot of the same properties that we'd expect would also fall in cost. Yeah, and then there's a question about whether carbon removal will also fall in cost. And that's an open question. You know, there's some ways that you can remove carbon that do seem amenable to learning by doing in economies of scale and modularity. All the things that have worked for batteries for your laptops that we're now using cars could apply to carbon removal. Um, but there are other parts of carbon removal that are large scale and uh, and may not fall in cost. So yeah, I'd be less confident on the carbon removal technologies falling in cost than I would be on the clean energy parts of it. So along with the Inflation Reduction Act, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer promised Senator Manchin that the Senate would take up permitting reform. Uh, a lot of climate hawks in the Senate, Brian Schatz, Sanders, and White House are mixed on this legislation. Can you explain to our listeners what permitting reform is and your views on the benefits and drawbacks of that legislation? Yeah, I mean, a big part of this whole transition to net zero, zero emissions, climate targets, it, it requires a lot of effort, a lot of investment and a lot of construction. And it's, you know, real physical things that take up space, like, you know, using putting uh, wind farms on farmland or installing solar panels on buildings or on land and finding ways to do that that's you know aesthetically acceptable and that might work with agriculture. You know, there's an emerging area called photovoltaics is solar panels. Uh, agrivoltaics is where you can have shade tolerant crops working with solar panels. And so how we use the land uh, is gonna be crucial to this effort and the way things work today, there's a ton of veto points in being able to develop large scale projects. And if it's projects that cross jurisdictions, like cross 
municipalities or across states, it brings in a lot of different stakeholders and a lot of veto points. And the idea with permitting reform is that you could streamline some of that and make the approval process constrained to a certain timeline, like the environmental impact statements will have to be done for any large infrastructure projects like these. But now we talk about limiting it to like a one-year process rather than extending to three or four years, which can really take those projects out of the money and make it not worthwhile for investors. And then probably the most important part of permitting reform will be on transmission, building power lines. And now the federal government is going to have some authority to say these power lines are in the national interest because they support these climate goals. And so they take away uh, some of the avenues for, for people and local groups to oppose power lines. And, you know, I'm, honestly, I see power lines in a beautiful landscape. and I don't think they look pretty. They look industrial. But, you know, increasingly, it's clear that we need them. And if you can do them in a good way, you can do them along existing rights of way, like along interstate highways or along rail lines where there's already an industrial uh, component. So, you know, there's there's ways to do it well and ways to do it badly. But there's no question that we need to do much more transmission to do, make this transition. So the permitting reform is, is critical. And so seeing progress on that uh, is a big way that the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act is going to be more uh, more feasible and more effective, too. So going off of that, a lot of these technologies have different drawbacks and different trade-offs, and they're mixed views by environmentalists and people in the political community about these different types of energy. Um, solar uses a lot of land. Uh, nuclear energy has a lot of disagreement about it in the environmental community regarding its trade-offs. Can you talk about that disagreement within the environmental community and what the future looks like for nuclear energy in the U.S. and Europe? Yeah, I mean, the way I put it in the class I teach is that everybody agrees that we want energy that's cheap, that's clean, and that's reliable. Um, but we often disagree about which is most important. If you're focused on economic growth, cheap matters a lot. If you're uh, from an engineering perspective or from a military perspective, reliability really matters. If you're coming from a public health perspective, you think about clean being really important. And so the, the trick is to find technologies where those trade-offs are not quite as contentious. And you know that's the promise of this act is to have these technologies improve so that we're not fighting about whether clean is more important than cheap or reliable, um, but we have solutions that address all of them. And I think that's really one of the benefits of this act. And what makes me optimistic about this area in general is yeah, there are trade-offs. Anytime you do things at really large scale, there will be you know downsides to it and, and winners and losers. But boy, I mean, we can make this a lot less of a game of winners and losers by pushing on the innovation and improving the technology. So yeah, clearly real concerns with any of these things, whether it's running transmission lines through uh, an appealing landscape or developing offshore wind in a place that people are used to having just open views and open water. Um, but, you know, that's the other trade-off is what's happening uh, to our landscape from the climate changing, and that's what we want to avoid as well. So there's kind of trade-offs through all of this. But on the technology side, uh, them becoming less intense is kind of one of the biggest um, positive developments of this whole area. So if you were to look forward um, and do some predictions by, let's say, 2050 or 2075, what would be the dominant form of energy production in the U.S.? Would it be nuclear energy? Would it be some sort of like 
30-30 mix with um, solar and hydro and um, wind? Or what would be the dominant form? Yeah, I mean, it would, it would definitely be a mix. And that's kind of one of the best ways to avoid the downsides of any of these technologies is to kind of hedge your bets with a, a mix of technologies. But it's, boy, it's really going to be hard to imagine a 2050 world that's not dominated by the technologies that have the best attributes. And right now, with cheap, clean and reliable, it's some combination of wind and solar and storage and electric vehicles. I just think that that is the progress in those, the improvements to kind of well-being that those bring it's just going to be hard to say, well, these are some, and then we've got these other options too, and we need a mix of all of them. It, it really looks like wind, solar, and electric vehicles will really kind of be the dominant technologies. And then we'll have other parts that are important. I think some nuclear, existing nuclear will be important. And if we can develop some safe, affordable new nuclear, boy, that would give us some flexibility as well uh, and more transmission. But I, I just, it really does seem like this driving force of cheaper wind, cheaper solar, better connectivity, more responsive demand, transmission that links it all together, and then intelligence in the system that kind of makes it function when it's not wind, windy or sunny, and then having storage around for a few hours or maybe for weeks at that point. Um, that's a pretty robust system that's going to be pretty appealing and that a lot of interesting things will get built on. We've had a couple of interviews, I think, with other researchers who have been pretty concerned about the power grid in the past few months. How would all these new technologies tie into concerns about the power grid? Well, I mean, the grid is part of the whole project. So making the grid more reliable. So we have a grid now that's been designed from like 1920s, 1930s technology, where you have a big coal plant. Like we have one half an hour north of here in Portage, Wisconsin, that is kind of the big supplier of our energy here. And the grid is based on maybe like a thousand of those plants around the country and big lines that go to neighborhoods and then small lines that go to houses. But, you know, now it's changing so that we have producers, smaller producers throughout. We've got households that are now sometimes called prosumers. They produce energy and consume energy. They produce energy from their solar panels and they can sell it to the grid. And, you know, if some of them start to have energy storage, like big batteries in their basements, or probably even more effective is just having an electric vehicle that can serve as a battery, you know, during the night or when that car is not being used. That's a lot, a more robust system, as long as we also invest in developing that system and start to design it for kind of a two-way grid that, you know, fits the technologies that are emerging over the next few years and, and less focused on uh, a grid that serves the technology configuration of 90 years ago, which is a lot of what we have today. So there's some investment that needs to happen for the grid to be uh, kind of robust going forward. Uh, this act has a lot of potential to significantly improve our nation's own fight against climate change. And the fact that it has managed to pass our Congress says a lot as it is. Do you think that this new bill will have any political effect on other countries as well, particularly countries that are alongside the United States, principal culprits in global warming? I do. Yeah. I mean, it gives the U.S. a lot more credibility. You know, um, Senator John Kerry has been going around the world since the beginning of the Biden administration a year and a half ago trying to convince other countries. There's a dialogue with China, dialogue with India, 
dialogue with African countries and a lot of European countries, you know, to make sure that they're doing their part, that they're participating internationally, that we're kind of developing cooperation on climate. And, you know, it's really hard for him and his team to have much uh, credibility if we don't have domestic legislation. And we've never had domestic legislation on climate. We've had bits and pieces. We've got executive orders. We've had states that have been doing a lot and a lot of public sentiment. But if you look at the U.S. Congress and say, what have we done on climate change? We haven't done anything. And now we have. And that makes a big difference for Senator Kerry and other you know, efforts by the State Department and, uh, and the U.S. to talk to other countries to work on the U- U.N. process and get other countries to go along. Um, you know, I think a lot of what's happening is a shift in expectations. And the expectation now is that, okay, the U.S. is on its way to having its emissions by 2035 and getting to zero in the mid-century. And other countries have already made that those commitments and are doing things to get to those commitments. And so as more of that happens, countries and companies will start to assimilate that and make that be part of their expectation Be and say, okay, by 2040, we need to be pretty close to zero on our electricity sector emissions. And by 2050, our transportation has to be close to zero. And after that, everything else has to be. So yeah, it really goes in the direction of, of setting these expectations for the world that we need to all get our emissions to zero and that it's not crippling. It's not going to make the U.S. poor. It's not going to make it a place that people don't want to live because we're relying on clean electricity. I mean, all the evidence is that places that have gone for clean, it's more attractive places to live. And that's, you know, that's part of part of the whole idea here is we're creating a model for other places to follow. And how does our spending on the Inflation Reduction Act rank in terms of international spending to address climate change? It's increased our status um, from, you know, bits and pieces and doing research and development in a serious way. But this is more about actually deploying technology. So it's like I said before, it's a small, you know, it's a couple percent of what the global total needs to be. But it's potentially really catalytic in terms of private sector investing a lot because of it and other countries starting to invest because of it. And so I think it, it really does move things forward Um, that way beyond the dollars that we're going to see flowing to U.S. taxpayers. Can you talk about the responsibility of richer nations like the United States in addressing global climate change when the developing countries along the equator are experiencing the most adverse effects? Yeah, I mean, it's partly because of that residence time of CO2 in the atmosphere. It stays for a long time. So the the stuff we burned in the 1950s and 1960s is still affecting people's health and well-being today and will for decades to come. So there's this historical responsibility that it's not just about who created the problem in the past. It's about who's creating damages in the future. And who, and that is the U.S. and it's Western Europe and increasingly China, too. And so there's definitely responsibility that way. But even without that or in addition to that. There's also this responsibility that has to do with just being a, a leader because we're a rich, high incomes and we're technologically advanced and we have the means and we have the institutional capacity to do things like the Inflation Reduction Act or to do things like to deploy a lot of clean energy or build uh, a charging infrastructure system and to manage it all. 
And you know, our response then is to create a model and show the rest of the world, here's a way it can be done. China's also doing that. They're investing more in renewables than anyone. They're also showing uh, people how it can be done. And it's a different model. And a China model is not going to work in the U.S., but it might work in other countries. Similarly, the U.S. model, where there's a lot of private sector involvement, there's a lot of individual decision making that makes a lot of impact, that could also be applicable in other countries as well. So I think you know, stepping up and, and getting ahead on things and being a leader is, you know, kind of what uh, I think our biggest responsibility is. And so I really feel like finally we are doing that with the Inflation Reduction Act. What about our everyday lives as individuals? Are there any actions that we can take uh, on a personal level to make an actual difference given the scale of climate change? Or is it not so much about individual responsibility at all and more about the responsibility of large corporations or of large, richer nations? Yeah, I mean, in terms of individual actions, I kind of think of three things people can do. So one, you know, people can make changes in their everyday lives to reduce their personal carbon footprint. You can, instead of driving somewhere, you can take public transportation or ride a bike or walk. Uh, Think about avoiding flying is a way that a lot of people have done. That's a big carbon impact for a lot of people. So there's an array of things that people can do on an individual level. Not eating meat is another one that people can do, another thing that people can do. Um, So there's individual actions. And, you know, I I don't, I would not, I think those um, say a lot. You know, they, they show that something is important to someone. Um, there's off, we know there are pure effects. So when people start doing some of those things, other people around them are likely to try them or adopt them or, or maybe also take them on. So there are individual actions. I think those do matter. Um, a second thing is for people to uh, engage in the political process and at a bare minimum to vote. I mean, that's something that makes a tremendous difference. And especially for people, younger people and people in their 20s to vote, if the voting rates for people in their 20s were you know, twice what they are, this climate problem, the climate politics in the U.S. would be very, very different. And I think that's something that would make a really big difference. And, you know, there are organizations that are trying to appeal to people in their 20s to take this problem seriously, to vote and to vote with climate in mind. And I think as that uh, emerges, that can that can make a big difference. And then the third thing, I think, is for people just to use their talents. There's so much space in this problem for people to play a role, you know, whether it's a role doing communication, like you all are organizing this podcast and have climate as a topic, like that's a choice. And that's something that communicates things to others. So using, you know, a role in doing podcasts is something people that are marketing that could be really be if we're talking about trying to get people to vote, people that are good at marketing, that could make a tremendous difference. Engineers clearly are people working on the technologies. People that are entrepreneurs would make a really big difference too. Other types of activities as well, and you know, working with communities and, and finding ways to make this transition happen better will also make it more politically durable if people see benefits from it. So yeah, I just think there's a lot of ways for people to use their talents to work on this problem and, and direct their careers in this way. Because, you know, if we're talking about $4 trillion a year in clean energy investment, that's a lot of space and a lot of potential for action and investment. And so, yeah, getting involved in that is something that would all be welcome and would help. 
So let's touch briefly on some of the pie in the sky solutions um, surrounding climate change. Uh, the U.S. is likely to invest more in nuclear fission technology, which is being worked on here at UW-Madison. Um, people also talk about change geoengineering, where we would put chemicals into the sky to counteract some of the greenhouse effects of carbon emissions. Do you see any of these as legitimate ways that maybe 20 or 30 years from now the world could be engaging in to try to address the climate crisis? Yeah, generally, yes, because the problem is so big and there's there's even so much uncertainty about it. Like we know the climate is changing. We know that humans have caused it, um, but we don't know exactly how bad it will be and how quickly the effects will happen and where they will happen or what the actual effects will be. And, and I have to be honest, like com- where we are today compared to what I was learning in grad school is, you know, things have happened faster than we were expecting. I think it People sometimes talk about climate scientists as being alarmist, but I actually feel like they're actually quite conservative and maybe to a fault because now we have some impacts that, you know, people were talking about maybe in the 2030s, but they're happening with increasing frequency now, like rainfall in Wisconsin or wildfires out west and, and droughts in a lot of places. So, you know, that's that's the concern. And so any technology that has potential here, uh, I think is worth a run at, is worth some investment in, is worth some testing, some research and development. So nuclear fission you mentioned, yeah, I mean, I think that would make a big difference if we had nuclear power that's safe, that's proliferation resistant, and that's affordable, and that we can handle the waste somehow, like that would make a big difference. If we had nuclear fusion, where we can kind of do what happens on the sun, but on earth, that's also worth investing in. You know, that probably takes decades till we have that as a commercially viable technology, but you know, worth an effort to see if we could. And then blocking sunlight, you know, that's pretty, that's a pretty challenging one where, you know, so there is this idea that humans might do what volcanoes sometimes do. And a big volcano erupts like Pinatubo in the 1990s. It cooled the earth by a degree because it put all these sulfates up in the upper atmosphere. So there's this idea that we could just take like 90 aircraft with tanks in them and each do a flight a day and spray sulfur up at 60,000 feet. And then you could cool the earth by about one degree that way. And, you know, if we're trying to keep temperatures below, well below two degrees, and we're on a trajectory for three, then, you know, it could turn out we might need to do something like that. And so, you know, definitely has the potential for unintended consequences. It has the potential to take away efforts at reducing emissions. Um, But, you know, climate change is real and it's going to hurt real people. And so if there is some technology that can avoid that, even as a temporary fix, you know, I think it'd be worth knowing more about how that might work and and learning about it rather than saying that's not something that we we would ever do, because we might just get in a position where we become, you know, somewhat desperate in the short term to, to make things not that bad. You mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that you are the most optimistic you've ever been about Mm. climate change. What gives you the most hope right now about climate change efforts? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, I I realize that as I talk about this problem, how big it is and how slow it is to change, I realize when I teach it, I was making those points only all too well. And that I was actually discouraging people from getting engaged because they just seem as something that's stuck with us and we can't do anything about. And so I started making a list of reasons to be optimistic. And, you know, I think I got to a list of 10. And over time, the elements on that list have gotten more credible to me. And I've talked to other people and realized that they have other parts on their list that aren't on my list. And so, 
I think on that list, the the one that's strongest to me, and it underpins some of the others, uh, is the the falling costs in clean energy technologies for electric vehicles and renewables. There's a strong argument that the reason that we have the Inflation Reduction Act is because those technologies are there and they're ready to be deployed and they're cheaper than fossil fuels. And there's a system that's about to be built that is based on those. And so, boy, a lot can happen with that. And that that wasn't there 10 years ago, even five years ago, we weren't sure about it. So that makes me really optimistic. But, you know, there's another part of it, too, where I just... I've realized that in a lot of ways, it's much simpler to me is it, you know, I think we have a moral responsibility to be optimistic about this, because if you're pessimistic about climate change, and if everybody is, well, that just determines the outcome. That means we don't do the Inflation Reduction Act. We just double down on fossil fuels and we get really focused on the near term. And then we end up with a really nasty world that is buffered by climate crises one after the other. And, you know, there's a way to avoid that. And the way to avoid it is to believe that some of these things might work. And you want to make that belief justified and based in reality by having investment behind it, by having policy behind it, by hedging a lot of different risks, by taking a lot of different technology bets and having a whole portfolio and having it robust because the whole world's behind it. And, you know, there's a lot of ways you can go from believing it could happen to actually making it something that will happen. And that's that's a process we're in. And Inflation Reduction is a big, Inflation Reduction Act is a big step in that direction to make it more, more realistic and more credible. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, Listen, thanks. It's been thanks. great. Great to be here. Thanks. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.